Well, did you get all your reading done this week? Lots of reading, isn't there, to be included if you're following our storyline this morning. Uh, We have a lot of territory to cover, as you can see, and so I have the uh, daunting and delightful task of capturing the person, mission, and theology of the Apostle Paul this morning, all in 30 minutes. That's all. We have been covering what we call the storyline, the theme through Scripture since September, coming to a close here in a couple of weeks with the book of Revelation. This morning we come to the Apostle Paul, who I consider to be the, the bridge person, uh, carrying the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, Paul was literally the one taken by God to be the apostle uh, to the Gentiles, to all the non-Jews. And he was the one that crafted this message of the gospel in such a way that it went beyond its parochial setting in Jerusalem to that Jewish community and then bridged it into the Gentile community so that the whole world could know of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, here was a man of superior intellect. Literally half the books of the New Testament are attributed to the Apostle Paul. The 13 letters that he wrote, you can see them listed on the screen this morning, the territory that he covered uh, in his, his mission work. The book of Romans is probably considered one of the great pieces of literature in history. If you take a course on the history of Western civilization, that particular letter should be a part of the course because of the kind of quality of writing that's there. But Paul's mind was also matched by a passionate heart. F.F. Bruce, the theologian, wrote a biography of Paul entitled, The Apostle of the Heart Set Free. This was a man of passion. Now, to be able to kind of capture a, a bit of a glimpse of Paul's passionate heart, I want us to take us to a particular incident that occurred, and it happened to be a dispute that arose between Barnabas, his partner in ministry, and Paul as they were getting ready to go off on their second missionary journey, because I think this gives us an insight into who Paul is and was. Barnabas, as we know, is a character that we get introduced to in the book of Acts. He was the consummate encourager cheerleader. Literally, his name means son of encouragement. And so when the Apostle Paul came to faith in Christ, as recorded in Acts chapter 9, uh, Paul made an attempt to connect with the apostles in Jerusalem. But they were rightly mm, suspicious of whether Paul's conversion was real or not. Was this just a ruse to infiltrate the early church so that then he could carry on his persecution? Well, it was Barnabas that put his stamp of approval on Paul And the apostles accepted that stamp of approval as authenticity of who Paul really was. And then we come across Barnabas again in Acts chapter 11. He's sent from the mother church in Jerusalem to a city called Antioch that became the center of the mission of the church because Gentiles were also coming to faith in Christ along with the Jews. And so the mother church wanted to know, is this authentic? Is the Spirit really coming upon Gentiles? Barnabas comes, he affirms the authenticity of what's happening there, but then he immediately is aware that he is overwhelmed by the task ahead of him. And he remembers this apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, who has returned back to his hometown in Tarsus. Barnabas goes in search of him, brings him back to Antioch, gets Paul into the game, so to speak, and the rest is history, as they say. Well, from Antioch, Barnabas and Paul are sent off on the first missionary enterprise. They're the first two missionaries of the church. 
and go off on the first missionary journey. Along with them comes John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. But in that first missionary journey, John Mark falls back. The rigors of mission work is too much for him, so he returns to the home church back in Antioch. And, but as Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to take off and prepare to go back and visit the cities on their first missionary journey, Barnabas says, I, I want to take John Mark with us. I want to give him a, another chance to be a part of the team. But we read about Paul's response in verse 38 of Acts chapter 15. You can see it on the screen. But Paul wouldn't have him. He wasn't about to take along a quitter who, as soon as the going got tough, jumped ship on them. And in verse 39, it says that this great dispute arose between Barnabas and Paul, and they decided to go their separate ways. Now, I was fortunate enough to uncover a manuscript written by an on-the-line reporter who captured the dialogue between Barnabas and Paul at the time of their dispute. Here's how it went. Paul speaking to Barnabas, what do you mean you want to take John Mark along with us? Listen, Barnabas, what is important here is getting the message of the gospel out to as many in the Gentile world as possible. We can't do this if we're slowed down by someone who's already demonstrated he can't be trusted. Barnabas responds, but Paul, what good is the cause if in accomplishing it we treat people as objects? People are ends in themselves, not to be discarded into the trash heap of one mistake. Paul, it's not a matter of discarding. He's already disqualified himself. He has no stomach for this work, as his actions clearly have demonstrated. We are in a battle. We constantly face pressure and opposition from those we are trying to convince. I don't have the time and the energy to take care of John Mark while I'm engaged in spiritual warfare. Barnabas retorts, What's the gospel if it isn't about giving people a second chance? I mean, how can you proclaim God's redeeming grace if we will not encourage someone after they have failed? One chance and and that's it? Isn't the gospel about starting over? Paul again responds, Barnabas, I'm not unsympathetic to John Mark. He does seem repentant over his failure. It's a matter, though, of the larger good. The larger good is the call to the whole world. I'm sorry if there are casualties along the way. It's just the price we have to pay. Barnabas has the last word. Well, that price is too high. For me, I could not in good conscience proclaim Christ knowing that I have a bleeding brother back here and I haven't given him another chance to prove himself. I have to draw the line. Paul, we will have to separate. Well, who do you think was right? in that argument. How many of you would side with Barnabas? You can raise your hand. That's okay. How many of you would side with Paul? Don't we have any Paul? Focus here. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. One vote for Paul in the audience. Well, Paul is a very strong personality, doesn't it? And he usually uh, leaves an impression upon us because he's a man of vision, a man of passion, the same zealousness that uh, we saw in him persecuting the church is what he brought to his call to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul expresses his own sense of call to be an apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. If I proclaim the gospel, this gives me no grounds for boasting, for an obligation, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me, he pronounces judgment upon himself, if I do not proclaim the gospel. Paul's saying, 
this is what I must do. This is my sense of inner oughtness because of what God has claimed upon my life. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, I think Paul gives us his personal mission statement that this is what his life was all about. It is he, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy he powerfully inspires within me. And this is why we call Paul the apostle of the burning heart. And it was this passion that caused Paul to traverse the known world of that day, to go through the land we call Turkey, to bridge across that land at the Bosporus into Europe, and then ultimately to go to Rome. He traveled some 6,900 miles on three missionary journeys. He did this on foot, on horseback, on boat, uh, in many different ways to get there. And as the screen portrays these missionary journeys, these three different ones and the, the path that he took, let me read to you the way Paul described the rigors of these journeys. He records them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, frankly, in response to defending himself against false apostles. He writes, are they servants of Christ? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Now, what would it be that caused Paul to diverse land and sea to take the message of the gospel? What was this passion that was in him? Well, I think it was the picture of the new life in Christ that he wanted everybody to get in on who possibly could. Now, the daunting task this morning is to try to summarize the teaching of the Apostle Paul in 20 minutes, right? But I'm going to give it a shot here this morning to try to give you the broad outlines. and I'm going to build it around the image of salvation. Salvation in three tenses. Because I think Paul talked about the fact that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And here's the outline on the screen this morning. We have been saved. This is what we call justification, what God has done for us. We are being saved. This is what we call sanctification, what God is doing in us. And we will be saved. Glorification, what God will provide for us. So let's see if we can capture Paul's teaching here under these three headings this morning. First of all, we have been saved. Justification, what God has done for us. Paul labels salvation the mystery that was revealed to him. And here's the core of this mystery of salvation. Paul came to see salvation as a free gift from God that came to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be received 
by faith. Let me say that again. Salvation is the free gift of God that came through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be received by faith. This is not something we could ever earn ourselves to make ourselves right before God. Christ has done it all. Now, Paul was a very unlikely medium for this message. From the moment of Paul's birth and being raised in Judaism, he had learned the opposite of God's gift being free, that you had to earn your way into God's favor. It was his pedigree and performance that counted before a holy God in order for God to be pleased with his activity. In fact, Paul describes it himself, his life before Christ in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. If anyone has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the sign that he was a part of the chosen people of God, of the people of Israel, favored by God of all the peoples on the face of the earth, he was a part of that people, of the tribe of Benjamin, from which the kings came. A Hebrew of Hebrews, pure Hebrew blood, Paul is saying there. In regard to the law of Pharisee, Pharisee literally means the separated ones, the ones who committed to themselves to keeping 636 laws. That's what Paul committed himself to. As for zeal, persecuting the church. When this Jesus sect came along and abused the name of God, I was the first one to make sure that I was standing up for the name of the true God. And as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Couldn't find any fault in myself, he said, prior to his coming to faith in Christ. Paul had learned to grade on what we would call the performance reward system. If you perform, you get a reward. And Paul was going to perform to the nth degree. Now, we all are familiar with the performance reward system because we teach it to our kids from very early on, don't we? We all learned it in our families. Now, I can remember back when our daughter was little, we had this chart on the wall. And if she got five stars in a row making her bed, doing her homework, then she could cash in those stars for a soft ice cream comb at McDonald's. And from there it goes, doesn't it? Get good grades in school, you get rewarded. You do well on your job, you get rewarded with higher pay. He who has most toys wins, on it goes in life. But then the gospel comes along and nullifies all this attempted goodness at our own leverage for salvation. And Paul puts it in his classic statement about justification by faith alone like this in Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. Apart from keeping the law. Not a righteousness accrued from keeping law, but apart from keeping the law. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. What? What? I want to show God what a wonderful prize he has in having me. I can't earn my favor? Come on, why not? Well, this is the offense of the gospel. It says that there's a stain on the human heart that is so egregious that we can't blot it out. Or to change the image, we have accumulated unrepayable debt before the holy God. This is what the Bible calls sin. At its core, the human heart is so turned and twisted that we cannot straighten ourselves out. 
And it's got this way because we rebelled against the very one who made us for himself. We attempted a coup before the God of the universe. We competed with God for who was going to be supreme. This is simply called pride. We want to elevate ourselves above God. And how does this manifest itself in our world? Well, on a societal level, it manifests itself in tribalism. My tribe, my group is better than your group. In ethnic cleansing. Uh, In the the gap between the rich and the poor. On a personal level, it evidences itself in broken family relationships and broken relationships in general. You see, we all carry a fatal flaw. We all have a rogue gene. And Paul puts it very simply like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The whole human race stands under the indictment of God because we are sinners before a holy God. But God did for us what we could never do for ourselves, and this is the good news. In Romans 3, 24 and 25, Paul summarizes like like this. We are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. In other words, God did what the law could never do. The law could not save us. It can only show us how far short we fall before a holy God. It has no power in itself to have us accomplish it. And so we need to be justified freely. Now, what's that word justified mean? That's a legal term. It means that there is a debt to be paid to the law. But that debt is paid through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who stands in. We fall short before God, but God completes what God expects through the gift of His Son. And He bears on Himself the guilt of our sin. He is our stand-in, our go-between. Because we could never pay it ourselves. We could never blot the stain out ourselves. Christ is the one who absorbs the stain of our guilt. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5:21. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God, that we might become right before God. Well, perhaps a story might help at this point capture how The justice of God is fulfilled by the mercy of God. Fiorello LaGuardia was the colorful mayor of New York City during the Great Depression. And one bitterly cold night in January of 1935, he turned up in night court in the poorest ward of the city. LaGuardia dismissed the judge for that night, took the bench himself. He was going to try the cases. And no sooner had he sat down than a tattered old woman was brought before him and charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She was told, uh, she told LaGuardia that her daughter's husband had deserted her, that her daughter was sick, and her two grandchildren were starving. That's why she stole this loaf of bread. But the storekeeper was there, and he was going to press charges, and he was not going to let up. Well, LaGuardia sighed when he heard that story. He turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. Ten dollars or ten days in jail. 
But as he was pronouncing the sentence, the mayor was reaching in his pocket. He extracted a $10 bill, and he tossed it in his famous sombrero. And then he said to those gathered, here is the $10 fine I now remit. And furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. That bewildered old woman walked out that day with $47.50 in her pocket for her starving children. Isn't that a picture of the grace of God? But how does grace in general become grace for me in particular? And the conduit into the generosity of the heart of God for our own soul is to put our trust and confidence in the free gift offered by Jesus Christ. Faith is that connecting link. It's that conduit. It, it connects our hearts to that reservoir of grace so that it transferred into our heart, and we then get to experience the forgiveness of God by putting our trust and confidence in Him and when we acknowledge our own moral bankruptcy before God. This is how Paul says it in the well-known verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. I would say this was the message that Paul wanted to get out, that burned in his heart, that made him travel all those places, that God has lavishly poured out his loving grace upon us through the sacrifice of his son. There's a way to God for all of us. And justification is that completed past action, that we have been saved. In other words, when we were headed downhill, at a point in time, God penetrated this world through the cross and justified us. We have been saved. But unfortunately, we oftentimes stop there. We time and again preach this as if this is the minimum requirements to get into heaven. What a nice arrangement, we think. I sin, God forgives. What could be better? My future is secure. I don't need to worry about anything in the future. I just can go out and live as I please. If that's what we understand the gospel to be, then we have missed the mark. <laughs> because that simply leads to a life of transformation. And that's the second aspect of salvation. We have been saved. We are being saved. We moved into a process of sanctification. If you know the letters of the Apostle Paul, you know that they have a pattern to them. The pattern is that Paul initially lays out sort of that ground of salvation, how we can come into relationship with Christ, and then he says, okay, here are the implications. Here's what you are to do about that. Book of Romans is a perfect example. For the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul lays out this magnificent picture of the mercy of God. And then in chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourself as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. You see, once we are in Christ, we take on a new vocation. I'm using that word purposely. A new calling. Our calling is not our eight-to-five job, Monday through Friday. That's not our vocation. The biblical vocation 
is that process, day in and day out, of becoming like Christ, of entering into the fullness of what God has for us. And the Apostle Paul says, essentially, we need to take on our understanding of the Christian life like a training event, like an athlete who's training to perform an event. That's the attitude in which we need to, to take on our life in Christ. And so we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into what? Strict training. That's the attitude in which we approach the Christian life. Most of us in this room have probably been professionals at one time or another. We've trained for something, trained to get a certificate, trained to get a graduate degree. We put ourselves into it to advance ourselves. Paul is saying that's the same attitude in which you approach living the Christian life. Maybe some of us are athletes and we've trained to run a marathon. You don't just wake up one day, notice, oh my gosh, there's a marathon being run today. I think I'll go do it. No, you train to run a marathon. If you want to become a concert pianist, what do you have to do? Play over and over again. I love that story of Pablo Casals, tells, 85 years old, playing the cello, practices five hours a day. Pablo Casals, why are you continuing to practice? I'm hoping to get a little bit better, he says. That's the attitude, Paul says, that we have to approach this present salvation. We are being saved. Now, there's three fronts in which we, in a sense, have to work on in this present salvation. The first front is the stain within, as Paul describes it. He says that uh, even though the penalty of sin has been paid, the power of sin needs to be broken in our life. We need to deal with that stuff within us. And so he says, put off the old nature which belongs to the former manner of life and put on the new nature in true righteousness and wholeness. Take off those old tattered garments and put on the new clean garments. And it's just in the present tense. Do it day in and day out. That's one level in which this battle to become Christ-like is fought. The second one is with the pressures of the world squeezing us in. We live in a world that is not under the control and rule of God and therefore has value systems that wants to squeeze us into those value systems. And so Paul says in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Or as Phillips translates this, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. So that's the second front in which we battle to become like Christ. And the third front, Paul says, is a supernatural battle. We have an enemy. And the enemy says that we have a target on our back and that Satan is after us. There are the wiles of the devil. And each one of us has our own weak spot that the Satan can exploit. And so Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Now, I've just covered a lot of territory there very rapidly. Uh, it says that three fronts, the stain within, the world around, and the power beyond us that we're to fight. The world, the flesh, and the devil, as Martin Luther describes it. So we are now on a trajectory, admittedly through many ups and downs, this process of sanctification, 
being coming like the one that has taken up residence in our own heart. C.S. Lewis has a, a wonderful image to capture this process of transformation, this sanctification. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But then presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing a new wing up here, putting on an extra floor, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in us, in you. We are being saved. We have been saved. We are being saved. But then finally, the third tense of salvation. We will be saved. This is what I call glorification. Uh, what God will provide for us. And I think this is where Paul truly found his freedom. This is the apostle of the heart set free. Paul could say things like, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. You know what context Paul wrote that in? From prison. At the time he's writing this, he has one armed chained to a member of Caesar's elite, and he's saying, I've learned in whatever circumstance I've been to be content. How could he say that? Because he knew that there were no barriers to the love of Jesus Christ. Raise the walls as high as you want. The love of Jesus Christ is still there with me. And he captures this so beautifully and triumphantly at the end of the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. He writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor powers, nor neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul had such a foretaste of that love that he longed to enter into it fully. He wanted more of it. He had that sense that the life to come was far better than the present life that he was leading. When he compared his current life to the glory that was to come, all the suffering was going to pale in insignificance. So you read in Romans 8, 18, I consider the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then in another magnificent passage, he says that the life we now lead is really shadow land compared to the substance that is to come. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our light and momentary troubles, did you hear what I just read earlier in the text? But so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. That's the real stuff. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. And then Paul summed up his anticipated glorification like this. For me to live is Christ, 
to die is gain. Anything can be endured, Paul says, when you know the glory is to come will make anything that's come before matter at all. See, the Apostle Paul paints a complete picture, doesn't he, from beginning to end of what what our life is all about. He started with the assumption that something has gone drastically wrong with human beings. We needed to be saved, (laughs) declared right before God because of Christ's completed work. We then moved to being saved, which is our life's vocation, being transformed in the image of the indwelling Christ. And then we will be saved. Our future is secure and glory awaits us. We will shine like the sun. Martin Luther, who was the great reformer, who rediscovered justification by faith alone, used a a very kind of simple image to sum up everything that I've said this morning. He said, there's a patient that is mortally ill, but the doctor proclaimed he had medicine that could cure him. And the instant the medicine was administered, the doctor declared that the patient was well. That's justification. But then there's the process of getting better. That's sanctification. And once the patient is fully healed, that's glorification. If Paul were here this morning, he would want to know, first of all, have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? Or are you still holding on to the pride that says, I'm a pretty good person. God's pretty lucky to have me. Paul said, I tried that, and then I ran smack dab into Jesus Christ, and I found out that I was the worst of sinners, he said. I could only put my trust in Christ. If you are assured that you have trusted Christ in him alone, are you just coasting? Have you fully engaged in the vocation of Christ-likeness? Do you need to adopt the training mentality of an athlete and engage in the process of confronting that interior sin? the pressures of the world, the wiles of the devil. We can't just live this Christian life casually. And finally, what's your vision of the future? Are we longing for a glory to come? Have we a foretaste of the wonder of the radiance of Christ? Or are we so wedded to this world that we've forgotten that there's even a future that awaits us? The Lord chose Paul to tell us how to bury our past through the grace of Christ. He told us how to live with freedom in the present. He told us to participate in the wonder-filled eternity with the one who's entered our hearts now. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Well, we covered it in 30 minutes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your servant, Paul, for the way you got a hold of his heart, the way you wired him with his intellect and 
gave him passion in his spirit. The bridge person that he was so that we sitting here today would be able to articulate this magnificent vision of what life is all about. We pray this now, Lord, in your name. Amen.